Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Hey, Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. How All right. Um, Last time, we were just finishing up this stuff about history, and I was talking with James and how his notion, the stream of consciousness uh, is one of his, it's a term he invented, I guess you'd say, and he said that thought is personal and changing and continuous, and you can say that really about memory as well, that that's always happening. Um, the thing that thought does, human thought, is that it, it deals with objects independent of itself. So... You can think of the impossible, you can think of things you've never seen, you can think of things that aren't there is even more interesting, I guess, in some respect. And it's interested in some things and not others, and that's really, in a lot of respects, about attention. So, and we encode certain things with memory, we encode certain things, we don't encode others. Like, there's stuff that we just ignore. And I mentioned that the other day about how, especially little kids, tend to pay attention to irrelevant ideas and irrelevant details, right? I didn't remember anything about the stories that were told to me uh, at the library. I remember the color of the walls, right? So eventually you learn to pay attention to the right stuff, right? So that's where we were there. Bill, as his friends called him, I'm not sure they did, called talk about primary and secondary memory. Uh, again, we've mentioned, I've mentioned this already, but primary memory is what we would Let's say consciousness, if you want to call it that. It is, of course, like short-term memory, or we tend to use the term working memory a lot more today. Um, and secondary memory is everything else. Everything else. So we still use those terms today, those classifications. Um, he talked about memory without awareness, which is interesting because um, this is a little pre-Freud. And people give Freud a lot of credit for talking about memory without awareness and implicit memory. I think people are grasping at straws trying to give Freud hmm. credit. I really do. I, 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 yeah. I think he was abused as a child. <laughs> well, it would explain a lot. Um, he took a great deal of cocaine in his younger days, but I mean, so did a lot of other people, so what the hell. Um, the thing is... The cool thing that James talked about here was he was saying that most of our memory, just like I've been saying all along, I mean, this isn't a new idea that I'm saying that most of our memory is the stuff we're aware of. William James said this. And we've been talking about this forever. I mean, you're not aware of how your memory affects everything you do because you don't think about when did I learn to walk? You know, how did I learn to read? I mean, but all that stuff's happening all the time. Knowing the meaning of words, that's memory. He got a lot of stuff wrong, too. I haven't highlighted the stuff he got wrong, but he got stuff wrong, too, but it's not bad for a guy that was building it out of whole cloth. Right? He had Ebbinghaus and Wundt to basically reference. The other stuff was just him figuring stuff out. He did, however, have a PhD in psychology. He's one of the first people to have, actually, uh, a degree in psychology rather than philosophy. So, we can give him some credit. Uh, as I've mentioned many times, we really should go here. Um, Alfred Binet, who you may have heard of from the Stanford Binet, uh, the, the guy who developed the first IQ test, uh, an impressive fellow uh, in France in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, the idea was there should be universal education. 
This was a very progressive, very 20th century idea for the 19th century. The idea that every kid goes to school no matter what their parents do, also no matter what their abilities are. Now, French school teachers immediately put down their croissant and said, <laughs> no, like I said, wait a second, there's going to be a lot of slow kids in school. Right? There's bound to be suddenly. They weren't going to school, those kids. Now suddenly there will be. We have, and then the government, right? Always the solution in France. <laughs> the government said we need, and not a bad idea, by the way. I'm not completely making fun of the next song. Um, or your country. And you, what the hell. Um, <laughs> the point is, they, they said, you know, if this is the case, we better, if we're, if we're mandating this, we better make sure that we can spot the kids that need extra help. And that's where they enlisted Binet. So he was developing intelligence tests. And in fact, he, he coined the term slow, like saying, except he said it in French. But he said slow. So he said certain children were slower than others, which is where we get that from. Um, he was interested in the application, of course, to the classroom context. So he used naturalistic stimuli. Like he, he was a completely applied thing. He was not doing this out of, I want to know how memory works. He was saying, we have to spot kids that are going to need extra attention. So we're going to use naturalistic stimuli. So he was using things like pictures, words, etc. And he used free recall, uh, which is a technique, of course, we use today. Which is the idea of here's a list of words or a list of pictures or whatever. Can you recall them for He found the serial position effect. The idea that the first thing that you study and the last thing that you study are remembered better than the things you studied in the middle of the list. Right? You all learned about that in intro psych. So it's the first and the last thing are remembered better than the things in the middle. You can draw this pretty simple graph. First thing's here. Probably the last thing's going to be more up like that. And then it goes down. And then back up. This thing here, one thing you just heard about, is still in primary memory or working memory. These first couple items have made it into long-term memory or secondary memory. The things in the middle really never ended up anywhere. They just got lost. They get interfered with. They don't get processed at all. We still find that. This is a very reliable effect. So it's so reliable, in fact, that it's one of those things that when you're doing a demonstration in a class, you, what's one of the ones you choose? Because it always works when you're in class. So he, he's the first guy to find a serial position effect. And finding out that it was normal, like it wasn't just to say the slower kids or whatever, everybody was like this. Um, he also looked at errors, something we've talked about already. <clears throat> he found that earlier on in a list, I'm sorry, early on in the, re, earlier on in the recall, when you're recalling the words, so right away he gives you the list, let's say, of 10 items. Then he says, recall them for me, please. The first few errors you make are acoustic errors. In other words, what does the word sound like? I talked about president and resident. Words that rhyme, for example. Later on, the word, the errors become semantic errors. They're errors about meaning. Well, this makes sense because this is in primary or, or, or working memory, the early on stuff. It isn't, meaning has, we haven't worried about it meaning-wise yet. Give it processing yet. The processing happens later on. You go into secondary memory. That is semantic. 
So he discovered this. He doesn't get a lot of credit as a guy that did work on memory because he gets a lot of credit for IQ tests, and you know, good on him, he, he certainly did that. But he should get more credit in the literature for his work, though it's applied. And I think it's because it's applied, and people also think, well, because that's not what he was really studying, it was all, he was just doing IQ tests. They don't tend to think of him as a memory researcher, and I doubt if he was alive today, he would describe himself as a memory researcher, but when you look at his work, he did a lot of stuff on memory. So we've got to give him some credit. As I say, here's another smarty pants. He found the importance of memory uh, with pros. So he was giving lists, uh, um, passages to students to read, just like you get to school. Again, see, it's an, it's an applied situation. And the importance of that is you remember details that are important to the story. You don't remember the color of shirt the person's wearing in the story. You remember that he was fighting off man-eating sharks. I, I made that, I, I, that was the story he used. It was probably a story about wine or foie gras. <laughs> and of course, the shirts would all be the same, just described they were little berets and they, those wheels that they, I'll stop soon now, I saw I promise. There's some poor Canadian student in France right now in a cross going. And then, of course, we talk a lot about uh, ice hockey and uh, drinking beer and eating maple syrup. So it all balances out, really, doesn't it? <laughs> Except he said it in French, not with a ridiculous accent. <laughs> Phrases are remembered better than single words. That's kind of cool because it shows us again that. This is something we call today, we call elaborative processing. It's easier to remember stuff that has meaning. Phrases have more meaning than single words. You also have to, when we talk about levels of processing, you have to process the meaning more when I give you a phrase. Don't you? you don't have to process the meaning as much when I give you the, the word wall. But if I say... The walls were painted, I don't know what color this is, beige. Not really beige, but whatever. Nondescript institutional ugliness. <laughs> uh... <coughs> then you have to actually think about what that means, and you're going to remember that a little bit better. And how many times, I mean, you've probably found this when you're studying. What do you do? Do you just read things, or do you put them in your own words? If you put them in your own words, it really helps much more. I mean, I think you've probably all found that. And if you haven't yet, See a couple of light bulbs going off over people's heads, actually. Um, do that when you're studying. Put it in your own words. It really helps you. So really what he's talking about is gist. The gist of the story. Not, the, not remembering the story verbatim. Not remembering it word for word. But remembering the important points. I can tell you all about the Battle of Thermopylae. I took a course in engine warfare when I was in school. I don't remember the book I read. I remember what it looked like, but I don't remember the book itself, like the, what, the words. I could probably even draw you a map, a decent map, not a great one, but I could probably draw you. I vaguely remember how Dr. Santosuoso explained this to us as he was a interesting guy with a really thick Italian accent that taught us ancient warfare in the Western. 
and would go off. Do you think I go off on tangents? <laughs> he had just been divorced, and he would tell us about the date he had the night before. It was just in the middle of it. So then the Greeks were over here. Did I tell you about the woman I was with last night? <laughs> he didn't want to know. There was nothing weird. He would just say, so I put it in there. I think we'll go in again. Anyway, so the Greeks were here. But I don't actually remember the actual stories he told. I do remember, however, that he did say things like that. I remember the story of the battle from Light, how it turned out. Just like you do, right? You're not going to remember the actual things I say as clever as they all may be. What you're going to remember is, I hope, the content, the, the gist, the important parts. Again, that's not so bad, really, for a guy that, frankly, wasn't even really a memory researcher um, and isn't given the credit he's due. Isn't given the credit he's due. So that's where we're in the 19th century. Now, getting into the 20th century. Any questions, though, up to now? Okay. Why are we all in France? Uh, for, that they, he was in France because Binet was, um, well, that's because that's where Binet lived. I, uh, <laughs> no, I'm wondering if there was more. There were other people in France doing the supplied stuff at the time. Binet really took the lead in doing, developing the IQ tests um, because of the fact that they were trying to get it so everybody, they were okay. government mandated and everybody goes to school. And that's, again, you better give the French government uh, a lot of credit there, too, because it's a very 20th century idea. You know, back in Canada in the 1800s, you might go to school till grade eight, but you might not. No one was going around saying you got to go to school because you know, better go work on your farm, whatever. It's a very 20th century, very progressive idea. Um, cognition, thinking about thinking, um, gets eclipsed early on, in, at least in North America in the 20th century. Uh, now, interest, it's just because of the overuse of introspection. Now, Voigt kind of used introspection, right? Like, which one of these is heavier? This one. That's thinking about what you're doing, right? Sure. But, so don't Voigt's way, it's fine. Or, what is the word I just gave you? That's fine. That's or the concept, concept trigram that Ebbinghaus did. That's fine. The observers are trained, right? With Voigt's case, and Ebbinghaus' case, too, it's, it's himself. Uh, and they're very simple events. A word, a judgment about what light is brighter. Those are very simple events. We still use that today in, in psychophysics and in perception. Um, Titchener, who uh, worked with Wood, um, I don't, my, I have a theory about Titchener, and I'll explain it in a second. I, I'm only half kidding with this theory. But Titchener is this guy that got really into introspection. So it's like, well, we'll just take it a few steps further and we'll just sit here and imagine how our minds work. And you can see suddenly how that's not going to work at all. He always claimed to be doing what he was trained to do. But the thing is, I don't think he actually spoke German. That's my theory. <laughs> so you're just sort of thinking it all the time. Oh, yes, sir. Thank, thank you, Dr. Wunsch. Yes, very good. Very good. Very good. Yes. Everyone here, imagine how your mind works. Right. Yes, they write that up for me, and we'll be done with that. Uh, so, that's my theory. You can't prove or disprove data from my own introspections, because you're not me. My mind is like a flowing river with two aliens in a boat in it. And there's a man pulling levers in the background, running everything. 
Mine isn't. Well, mine is, so there. <laughs> Science stops, you know? Stewie. Stewie. Alright, well, I can send one of the Stewie if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> How can they be? Is the question I'm asking first. Say, for example, I discuss something, yeah. I, I experience something and discuss my perception on sure. it. Sure. Our perception is reconstructed of course. in each person's Absolutely. mind. Yes. So if I can reconstruct something very similar yes. or as close to identical as you can yes. individually yes. with someone who has nothing to do with me in the culture and the country, sure. um, and we can do this in several instances. Yes. You know, science likes reproductive or reproduction. Is it? Uh, that's about it. No, no, I know what you mean. Um, <laughs> reproductibility so, was the word you were looking for. Thank you. Um, can we not begin to compare those results when they have nothing to do? Oh, sure, but we can do it when there's simple things. Like everybody's memory everywhere in the world works, as long as they're not they don't have a disorder or something, so it works the same way. We can take a, 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 a tribes, a Bantu tribesman in uh, uh, Botswana. And give him a list of words in his own language, and he'll recall them, and we'll, show, we'll get a serial position effect. Um, we can ask him, we can tell him a story and have him recall it, and he'll recall just what we call word for word. He just won't. Um, so that's fine. But Titchener took it to a point where, and people like Titchener, took it to a point where it got so detailed and so personal that it cannot be reproducible. That's the problem. What you're saying is true. Because, in essence, we use introspection all the time, except that it's, what were the words I gave you? It's very simple events, right? If we can get things where, if I was to stimulate part of your brain and you uh, smell burnt toast, and I did the same thing and you smell burnt toast and you did, we can say that's the burnt toast region of your brain. That's pretty, that, that's fine. Because we do have to get humans, you know, uh, uh, it's the word I'm looking for, uh, making responses. That's true enough. But if you go back and read Titchener, now, it's not like everything you thought was wrong. It's just that you couldn't say it was wrong. And that's the issue, right? So it's, it's the reproducibility partly, but it's also that even if you can reproduce it, I don't know that that's because two people, both just by dumb luck, got the same thing. There's alternative explanations. And there's also this, the internal... Um, I don't want to put this. I don't know that what you... I can't falsify what you're saying. It's, it's probably the biggest thing. I can't. Right? I, I may think it's complete crap, but I can't show it that it is. Because it's, it's your own introspection. Get it. How would you measure introspection? Uh, you don't. To be able to reproduce You don't. It. To reproduce it, you don't. That's the other thing. It's, it's not measurable. In, introspection, if you want to call it that, of recalling words, or which one's heavier, that's reproducible. Saying that I think my mind works like this isn't. And that's the problem. It's very hard to measure something like that, if, if possible at all. This is one of the problems of consciousness in general. It's hard to measure what consciousness even is. Right? Because if, if for all I know, you're all mindless automatons. And, I, and, I'm, uh, and it feels that way some days. Uh, joke. It's just kept kidding. I kid because I love. Um, but you can't prove to me you're conscious. Consciousness is a real problem. Um, so psychologists mostly ignore it. Because we can't really say, it's a thing. 
yeah, I know, I'm self-aware. But I can't, it's hard for me to prove that you are, because it involves me thinking, oh yeah, I'm here. I don't know how the hell I prove that. So it's a tough, it's a tough one. It's the last, it's probably the holy, one of the holy grails of psychology, actually, is if you actually could study consciousness, and everyone would agree that you've studied consciousness, you might get a call from the Nobel people. You know, a halfway drunk call from the king of Sweden. Because he does that, he has a few shots and he calls you. That's how it works. <laughs> so, now there's a reaction to introspection, and Freud, by the way, it's both. And that's behaviorism, that's John Watson, that's we don't have any internal thoughts, we don't study thought. We can't study thought, because thought is a mental event, we don't study mental events, we just study behavior. Uh, Watson said thought was actually micro-speech. You're just talking to yourself. So he, in fact, at one point, was paralyzed with curare and asked if he still had thoughts. He did, by the way, but he said it must have been a little bit enough curare and my lips could still move. John Watson was an interesting man. Uh, he was interested only in the observable. Only in the observable. And you can't observe consciousness. Now the problem is he's throwing cognition in with consciousness. There's a difference there, right? Well, that's where behavioral, behavioral cognitive therapy is. Well, yeah, and we, we talk about cognition and behavior because behavior drives cognition a lot of the time, right? right. No doubt. So if you can't study consciousness, it's not observed. Memory can't be, I talked about this earlier, directly observed either, so we don't study it. This is Watson talking, not me. It's a stimulus response type of psychology. Indeed, Watson became the head of the APA in 1915 and um, gave a speech about behaviorism when he got elected. This became basically all of what psychology was for a very long time, well into the 1950s, especially in North America. Uh, not the clinical stuff so much, um, but all scientific psychology became behaviorism. Didn't matter if you're studying pigeons, rats, or people. Watson, apparently not a very nice guy. What I hear, what you read. Uh, also uh, had an affair with a woman who was his lab assistant, so he was fired. Uh, nowadays, he can become the president of the United States if that happens. But, and you do a good job, by the way, I think. But, uh, you know, uh, point is, so he's fired and he moves on because he uh, writes a lot of popular articles, stops being an academic. But he still held big sway, and of course Skinner takes over. And Skinner was apparently a very nice guy, by the way. Um, some people resisted the Gestalt psychologists over in Germany, and some over in North America, but mostly they're in Germany. Uh, these are guys, you know, about Gestalt psychology, perceptions of the whole, not the parts. They didn't like the reduction of the uh, reductionism of the behaviorists. I'm a reductionist, and I don't like the reductionism of the behaviorists. Uh, it's too much. <coughs> The idea that everything is just stimulus response, stimulus response, it's kind of crazy to me. And to most people, dead. But the Gestalt psychologists were going against the, what looked like the tide of history. You know, so good on them. Uh, Bartlett, it was a British guy, uh, I think he was English. Uh, and, I mean, I know he's British, but I'm pretty sure he was English, I think he was Scottish. Um, and he sort of fought the good fight. He studied memory, he studied, gave people passages to read, and he also. He rediscovered gist, and he's English, so I don't think he gave Binet any credit. <laughs> but uh, 
he was basically doing a lot of what Binet was doing, except Binet was doing it in um, <coughs> an applied situation. Bartlett was doing it in a lab situation, uh, giving people, uh, he was showing that memory was a reconstructive process. That, in fact, people weren't recalling things word for word, they were reconstructing the story that they'd been told. So we talked about construction and reconstruction. So, but there were very few people holding out against the tide of behaviorism. Right? Now, in the 50s, there was a revolution. Both Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. Nobody? Nothing? Okay. <laughs> Um, psychology started to kind of outgrow behaviorism. It was stagnant. I mean, it was, there's only so many times you can get a pigeon to peck at a key in the Skinner box. Uh, it eventually gets old. Um, there were people doing personality work, and then people talk about what they call the cognitive style. Because what is a personality other than a style of representing the world? So people were starting to study personality. And those of you who taken Paul's personality class or are taking it now know that in the 40s and 30s and early 50s, people were studying personality. I mean, behaviorism got such a hold to the point at Harvard University in the psychology department, you said, what's on your mind? You said to people, what's on your behavior? That was like a thing to show you were a psychologist. And apparently a geek and a loser. Because I mean, I just seem so stupid. You know? Actually, Harvard's a decent school. Um, people talked about motivation and talked about cognitive dissonance. You know about this, the idea that, well, you know what cognitive dissonance is. So people studying personality, people studying motivation are starting to bring in the inner mental life. It still isn't affecting learning and memory, though. We're really not studying memory except giving people lists of words, having them recall them and graphing them, but saying it's just learning, we don't worry about any processes. Uh, people in linguistics. Uh, we're talking about, and in fact, one of the key moments of what people, some people term the cognitive revolution was when Skinner tried to say that human language learning was all instrumental condition. And linguists, uh, including like Noam Chomsky, said, no, it can't be. It can't just be. So we've got some psychologists, some people in other fields like linguistics, sort of rebelling against the tyranny of the behaviorism. And information theory is an important thing. Um, again, this is somewhat tangential to psychology, but information theory is the precursor to computer science. Okay? We need it so it's World War II, and the Germans had this really awesome code machine called Enigma. Right? And it was amazing, this machine. And we had to break their codes, because, you know, we had to win that war, because it was Hitler! <laughs> there wasn't anybody going, you know, we really shouldn't be fighting a war. It was Hitler! So they got codes, and they have to break the codes. Breaking codes isn't easy. It's basically math, right? But it's also, you have to figure out, you got input, you got a process, some sort, coding and encoding, and output. It sounds vaguely familiar. It sounds like memory, the way we think of it today. 
So people developed this information theory that's basically early computer science with big mechanical computers. And they ended up cracking the codes. So one of the reasons that we won the war, uh, one of them, was that we actually could read, we could read German and Japanese codes. <laughs> so we won. We also had more stuff and better gear. And a lot of Russians. <laughs> don't, don't discount the importance of having a whole lot of Russians on your side. Well, you got the whole Soviet Union on your team. That was a lot of guys. 23 million Soviet soldiers died in World War II. Like, that's a lot of people. They, you know, we probably would have won without them, but it would have involved a lot of nuclear weapons, <laughs> a lot more. Um, we crack the codes. So this is again, it's, code, it's, it's encoding and decoding. Oh, it's just like how we think of memory today. All this stuff is happening in the 40s, basically, and the 50s. Right, the 40s, of course, for the war. So what happens is the Atkinson Schiffer <coughs> model is the outgrowth of this. This is this idea of, that's the one I showed you, right, with sensory register or, or uh, and then short-term memory, long-term memory. That's just like, that's information theory. That's what that is. That is really just uh, computer science applied to human memory. It's kind of what we today would call cognitive science. Um, Brendan Milner was with working at the Montreal Neurological Institute. She moved to Canada uh, in the late 1930s um, and from, from the UK. And she's an amazing woman. She got a teaching job at University um, of Montréal, speaking French. And uh, then she decided she wanted to get a PhD, so she went and worked with Donald Hebb at the Montreal Neurological Institute McGill. Um, if you ever wonder where the Montreal Neurological Institute is, watch a Montreal Alouettes football game. It's in the west end zone. There's buildings in the west end zone. You'll actually, there's one of the reasons I wanted to go hang out there was you saw the free tickets to Alouettes games. But, and So she works with this guy, HM, who gets this operation because uh, he's got epilepsy, and he gets his hippocampus removed. Now, they didn't know, by the way, the hippocampus had to port the fermenter because it was the early 50s. And it got rid of his epilepsy. And then he wakes up, and he can't remember stuff. Personal stuff, anything new. Anything new. Old stuff, fine, not new stuff. So they, Scoville, who did the operation, goes and talks to Brenda Milner, and she decides that she's going to do some tests on this guy. That's, uh, she's the short one on the left. And he can't, she, Brenda worked with him for 50 years. He never knew who she was. He would never remember her name. He eventually got to, she was familiar. He used to say to her, did we go to high school together or something? Or are you on TV or something? But he never knew who she was. And he met her literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Besides his family, he probably spent more time with Brenda Miller than anyone else. So how was it with his family? Uh, they, he would, 
Uh, well, we have more specific. How do you do? Well, with his wife? He wasn't there. Oh, this happened when he was in his early 20s. Okay. Yeah. But with his mom, um, he remembered that it was his mom. Um, he remembered who his mom was. When his family moved, he lived back in Connecticut. I mean, when, when, when his family moved, he had trouble finding his way back to the new house because he didn't think they lived there. Um, he was told once about a band that died. This is what they found out apparently. But his memory problem after. Because we came out of the operation, his epilepsy was gone and his IQ had actually sort of higher IQ tests because he wasn't taking anti seizure medication anymore, which just kind of makes him tired. Um, so he, and then he seemed fine. And then he was told about an aunt that died, and then he was sad because it was my favorite aunt. And then he was told somebody to talk about to him the next day, he had exactly the same reaction. Oh my God, I can't believe she's dead. Uh, he used to look at himself in the mirror and be like, who's that guy? I'm 23 years old. Right? Oh, okay. So he didn't remember anything new. The interesting explicitly and anything episodic. He could, one of the things Brenda did with him is she gave him what's called mirror tracing. And what mirror tracing tests are, you get a shape like a star. So just do that. And there's the star. So it's a star inside a star. And your task is to draw it in here and stay in the lines. So you're thinking that's really easy. Not if you're doing it by looking at the mirror here. That's actually exceedingly hard, because left is right and up is down. Um, it can be learned, though. You can actually learn it and get perfect at it pretty quickly, but you've just never done it before, so you'll make a ton of mistakes. You go up, and you make it go down. It takes a few trials, so you're actually pretty good at it. <coughs> so she tried him on this. He learned just like anybody else. The next day, she brings him into her lab. He tries it. She explains the task to him, because uh, introduces herself, obviously, and then explains the task to him. And he goes, okay, I'll try that. And he's perfect at it. And she says, wow, that's pretty good. Have you ever done this before? And he goes, I, I don't even know who you are. I've never done this before. So he could learn things implicitly and remember them, because that's evidence of memory, persistence of learning. But he couldn't remember who she was or ever learning how to do this. So this is one of those... The Atkinson-Schiffrin model comes up, we have a model, and we have physiological evidence. This is enough that people start going, okay, maybe behaviorism is kind of stupid. It's a little bit extreme. I met her when she was given an honorary degree at the Murray University of Newfoundland. That's why uh, I'm standing there with her. And I got to hang out with her for three days, and it was just awesome. And she didn't talk science once. I think I've told many of you this before. All she wanted to talk about was hockey. She's a huge, well, not huge, because she's very small, but among, <laughs> she's a big Montreal Canadiens fan. Like, she's a really big Montreal Canadiens fan. Um, and it was during the playoffs in 2002, and uh, we just beat Boston, and then we're playing Carolina in the second round, and we're up two games to one, and we're at the, a dinner with the president of Moore University. And the whole time she's saying this to me, David, go check the score in the game. So I go back to the golf club. I go back to the bar part of my kids. When I come back, I tell her. And then it got to be like with a minute left. And she said, I think I should go back to my hotel now. I said, OK. So I got the cab and took back to the hotel and walked home. By that time, Montreal lost the game because Eric Cole, who now plays for Montreal, scored with like a minute left and then scored in overtime. And she said to me the next day, when I got her at the hotel, she said, so did we win? She said, oh, no. Well, at least tell me Toronto lost. <laughs> and I said, uh, no, they won. She said, you are never just speaking about hockey again. You are very bad luck, young man. She's amazing. Uh, she had 
I saw her give a talk about 10 years ago when she, when she was given the Hebb Award for like the outstanding contribution to experimental psychology in Canada, which is named after her PhD supervisor. And she said she'd slowed down. When she was introduced, the guy was, was one, of her, one of her like five postdocs. And when he introduced her, he said, well, now that she's turned 90, she's slowed down. She only works six and a half days a week. Uh, she slowed down quite a bit since then. Uh, they're actually, I'll put a link. There's an interview that me and another guy, Mark Peltier, did with her uh, for a podcast I've done before, Fusion Biotech. I'll put a link on the blog. Um, she's fascinating. I'm amazed she hasn't won a Nobel Prize. I really am amazed she hasn't won one. It's, it's the only prize left that she hasn't won. Uh, and she ought to win it. She's amazing. Well, she's an astronaut, so she's got that active medical for her. Um, so we now got a model, we got physiology. That pretty much sewed up the idea that, like I said, the revolutionaries now become the establishment, as always happens in revolutions. So today, by the 70s, memory was studied all over the world. The idea of only studying non-mental events wasn't a big thing. And I'll just give you a list of names, and I'll just, and this is just off the top of my head. Um, and they'll tell me, U of T, episodic and semantic memory, you've seen the paper on the uh, CNS. Gus Craig, U of T, levels of processing, the most cited paper, Craig and Lockhart, 1973, is the most cited paper in the history of psychology. It's about levels of processing. Also, U of T. Norm Slomeka, I put him up there because he was a U of T and he used to, he was one of the last people that studied verbal learning and, and hated the idea of there being memory systems. He once, when Tolkien always used the example, knowing what you had for breakfast is different than knowing what breakfast is. And Norm Slomeka would say, ah, yes, of course, the breakfast memory system. He was sort of the last holdout. Um, Colin McLeod, who's the chair of the psych department at the University of Waterloo, uh, he's the guy who wrote, literally wrote the ultimate paper on the Stroop effect, but also a huge big-time memory researcher. Um, Morris Moskowitz uh, at U of T as well, uh, big in cognitive neuroscience. Uh, Dan Schachter, who I talked about, who did his PhD with Tolkien, I talked with him on the first day. Dan's a huge guy in uh, implicit memory. Larry Jacoby, uh, Larry, is at Rice, I think, in Houston, but I think he sent his kid to McMaster. Uh, so he's got a Canadian connection as well. Roddy Rodiger, uh, who's Roddy? Purdue? Um, studies false memories, and it's, it's amazing how he does it. I don't want to talk too much about it because I'll talk about it later in the course, and it'll, I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, so I don't want to do that. Larry Swire, who's a big guy uh, down in, I think, UCSD, University of California, San Diego, <clears throat> huge in memory research, also big in looking at, um, he's the procedural versus declarative memory. Uh, Elizabeth Loftus, who is a really important researcher in, again, false memories, uh, in the uh, uh, silly notion that we have repressed memories, let's say that. And that, by the way, did you notice how many of those people are based in or are Canadian? That's pretty awesome. In fact, most of them are UFT or were. Yeah, David. I missed the Schachter. Dan Schachter, he did his PhD with Andrew Talbot. Uh, I think he's in University of Arizona now, and he uh, does a lot of stuff on priming and implicit memory. Don't worry about what these people do. Oh, yeah. You will have, you will, you'll definitely eventually worry about Talbot because his name comes up almost every lecture, so that'll happen. That's just an example. 
And part of me listing these people was to show you how important Canada's been, but especially how important the University of Toronto has been in the development of memory research. It's a big, important place in this. Um, why that happened, I don't know. I do know that when in, in the late, early 1960s, U of T was not a very good psychology department. It was not well regarded. And they made a point of stealing Indel Tulling from another university. And once you get one, at least, you know, it's what they do in sports. You sign one free agent, and then the rest of the people start showing up. And that's what ended up happening. And I mean, um, Paul McLeod was there. He's left since the, to, to, to Waterloo. But I mean, that's a pretty good group of people right there. All right, questions about some of this history stuff before we move on to brains? I like saying it like that. It's fine. It, it comes up, uh, but that's not what this course is about. It, a lot of you guys are in brain behavior, and you'll hear about some of this stuff. You'll see some of the slides, frankly. Um, all right. Let's do that thing again. Why is the first slide in that? It's very OK, memories kind of have to be in your brain. What the hell else would they be? Your arm? I mean, that's a given. When my memory is completely in my appendix. Now it's got to be in your brain. It's sort of a, we'll take that as a given. Uh, and I, then I got this, if you have to print up notes, like, yeah, somewhere. <laughs> We're not entirely sure how or where, uh, but it's got to be in there somewhere. Um, the questions that arise are things like, how are, they, how are memories stored? Um, where are they stored? And frankly, is it just connections? Is it just... That looks awful. Looks like I should be wearing a secret set of decoder glasses. Look at me. And is it just connections? Is it just new connections? Are memories made by connecting one thing to another? Is that what they are? Um, maybe. Nobody really knows that yet. So, but they're interesting questions to keep in the back of your mind as you think about, as we go through the course, you can think about these kind of issues and say, you know, why is your memory, uh, where are things stored, how are they stored, etc. We know there are parts, and I'll talk about this, that are important in storing memories. We don't know how the memories themselves are stored. Okay, it's a horrible thing somewhere. Okay, so these are just, as I said, it's, it's the, the parts we're going to have to worry about, this isn't the brain behavior class, so there'll be very few parts we have to worry about, very little anatomy. But the names of parts of these can be confusing, unless you speak Greek and Latin. Uh, your brain itself is organized in a vast, what I would call a semi-random pattern. It, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. Evolution doesn't work on sense. It works on what it's got in front of it. So that's fine. 
But you've got to realize that it isn't organized the way you would want it to be. Let's say that. So there is memorization involved here. Some of the names are confusing. Uh, substantia negra, which means black stuff. Why is it called that? It's called that because when you stain it with silver nitrate, it stains black. My favorite name in all parts of the brain is zona inserta. That is Latin for uncertain zone. They found, somebody found part that wasn't named, and they didn't know what it did, so they called it the uncertain zone. But they did it in Latin because it said. Some of the names make a little bit of sense, and one of the ones we'll talk a lot about is hippocampus. Hippocampus uh, is a part of your brain uh, that is in uh, sort of just that's in your temporal lobe, and it's in the limbic system, uh, and it's shaped kind of like kind of like this. Uh, like that. Now I would call that the question mark, but they called it hippocampus because it looks kind of like a seahorse. Right? If can in French, that's seahorse, fair enough. Or in Latin. Amygdala is uh, right next to hippocampus. It can be important in memory. I think most of you know this has something to do with emotion. And remember, emotional memories are remembered, and you would just know this just intuitively, are remembered more clearly than non-emotional memories, right? Uh, it's, amygdala is a Greek word. It means almond. And the amygdala is about the size of an almond and about the shape of an almond but much more delicious. Okay, <laughs> I've never eaten a liquid so. so those names make some sense. Again, you kind of have to know Greek or Latin. Um, the key stuff, I'll tell you the ones you want to know about. The big one, obviously, is going to be here. Um, these are terms, I'm just going to go through these. Don't worry about you're not going to get tested on this. This is just so, for example, if you're reading a paper for your paper, you can understand what these words mean. Anterior is towards the front. Uh, caudal is like this. Dorsal is back here. Dorsal fin on a, on a dolphin, you know. Frontal is to the front. Frontal. Shouldn't this be backal? No. It's dorsal. Inferior is below. Uh, lateral is cross. Medial is the middle. Posterior is the back. Rostral is towards the front from the Latin word towards the nose. It means towards the beak. Rostrum is a, Greek, is a Latin word meaning uh, beak. Sagittal. Superior is above. What was sagittal? You just kind of oh, yeah. Like that, cross. Oh. Sagittal plane. Ventral is towards gut. Dorsal, again, which I have twice apparently, because like is thought of ventral, is towards the back. These are terms that might come up if you're reading. I'm not going to test you on you. That's crazy. This isn't the brain behavior class. Okay? Um, so these may come up. You can see things like, for example, um, the dorsal medial thalamic nucleus. Dorsal towards the back, medial in the middle of the thalamus. Oh, now we know where that is. That's why it's called that. So the words are actually useful for that, but I mean, we're not going to need them too much in this class, obviously. 
Okay? So don't worry too much about them, but it's, I just wanted to mention because you might, if you're doing, a lot of you, I think, will want to look at stuff for your papers or your presentations about sort of the neuroscience angle of things. Um, this might help you a little bit. You can always just Google them, too. I guess I could skip that slide in the future. You can say Google those terms. I can skip teaching. Just, say, just Google memory will be done. Today, your task is to read Wikipedia. All right. Hey, diagram. Um, this is a pretty simple diagram. Um, many of you have seen it before. Hell, if, you, if I teach you an intro, you see this diagram. The frontal lobe is at the front of your brain. That's a good name. The temporal lobe, I remember that one because it's by your temple. That's not why it's named that, but that's good. The occipital lobe, that's your occipital bone back there, I think. So that's good. Parietal is the one that's left. <laughs> that's why I used to remember that. Then there's the cerebellum, which is below. And then there's, of course, the brainstem. And obviously, I clearly have got this by permission of this website. <laughs> so, when we talk about memory stuff, the important thing here, temporal, that's hippocampus is inside of temporal lobe. Frontal lobe, this is really complex cognition. And there's motor and sensory stuff here. This does nothing but vision. Uh, this does vision and space. Okay? This does balance things like that. Your brainstem uh, basically connecting between spinal column and the rest of your brain and does some very simple things like sleep and wakefulness. Um, your brainstem does not, however, hold your brain up. That's not its function. I was given that answer once on a test. <laughs> The function of your brain snap, it holds your brain up. Yes, it, no, it does. You can't even say yes, it does, zero. Right, I just, no, that's not what it does. Because if you, then we would need a spine. If you didn't have a spine and you're trying to hold your head up, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. So that's not the function of the, of the brain stem, it's not the brain holding. All right. Okay, so cortex is where complex, that's the lumpy bits, that's the cortex, okay? Um, the lumpy bits, the, the, the wrinkly stuff, the stuff on the surface. Inside. Yeah, on top, you know. And, I'm in, and below that, subcortical, there are some important structures that you can see in here. See, so this is like if you could view inside. Look at there's the hippocampus there. Right? See? It's got kind of a question marky. It looks like a seahorse if you've been looking at seahorses all day. <laughs> and you're squinting and you're tired and you've just taken mushrooms. <laughs> then it looks like a seahorse. So it doesn't really look like a seahorse. I meant to look though, look, it's even the size is right. It's the size of an omelet. Um, uh, well, let's go through these. So hippocampus, that's our important one. As it says here, this is from the Brain Behavior book, involved mainly with memory. Yes, that is true. Its key function is. Um, consolidating episodic memory. So what it does is it makes, it takes the events of your life as they're happening and it turns them into episodic memories. It turns them into memories about yourself. And we know this uh, in a few ways, a lot of them being, almost all of them being case studies, the big one being HM. HM doesn't have this. This was beautifully and precisely removed. And that's why he can't remember, couldn't, couldn't remember anything new. How old did he have 
Um, he left the twins in his 80s. Okay, so yeah. He died in 2008. Yeah, his name's Henry or something. I'm so used to calling him HM, but I don't know his name. Um, his name came out afterwards. In fact, if you type in HM into Wikipedia, you'll find an article from the guy. Because now that he's dead, they, they don't have to work with him anymore. Did he have any problems with facial location? Uh, that's a question I always ask, and uh, people, and I don't think they really into that too much. Um, he had, like, you know, like, navigation generally. Oh, he could get around, like, where he was going, but if you moved anything, you know, like, if you moved into another, when his family moved, yeah. But generally, it's not just space, like, it's everything else, too. Yeah. I think, because in non-humans, that's the reason... I was just asking this question is because in non-humans, hippocampus is exceedingly important in, in, in spatial memory, knowing where you're going, where you've been. Um, that's probably the closest thing they have to something episodic, right? Is is knowing where I've been and where I'm going. We have that, but on top of that, we've got like it was just my fourth birthday, forty-seven, back in June. But whatever, um, that kind of thing. So I think that's probably the reason. So he had spatial problems, yeah, but. They would be related to episodes, yeah. yeah. Um, he, like I said, he, he had the notion that he'd seen people before, that he'd seen a lot, but he didn't know where from. And a very common thing, and in fact, this happens anyway. If I show you pictures of people that you don't recognize right away, like you can't name them, but you recognize them, the most common thing you either say is that you went to school with them or that they're on TV, that they're famous. Because that's, why would I know this face? It's a good, take your memory to good guess. Why would I know this face? Oh, I know that guy because I went to school with him, or I know her because she's got a hit single. Because yeah. we all follow the top 40 charts, right? So hippocampus, it's the key thing in all this. For, for everything we're going to talk about in this class, for the most part, hippocampus is going to be the most important part of your brain to talk about. Um, amygdala is important in memory, and that's right beside it, as you can see, and it deals with emotion. Now, and it's strong emotion. Strong emotion. Not like being bored, but, you know, excitement. Joy, fear, anger. Now, those kind of memories are remembered way better than mundane memories, than just regular things that happen in daily life. Right? And the notion is that there, and there are of course connections here, that when you get both hippocampus and amygdala firing at the same time, you get a stronger memory. Um, thalamus, that's like a, a router for all your sensory systems, everything but smell. And you might say, well, why are you even mentioning that? Because smell memory is a fascinating thing, and it's something we don't understand very well. Um, the cool thing about smell memory, unlike, so like every other sensory system goes through your thalamus, except for smell. It goes from your olfactory bulb straight back to your amygdala. It's, it's a chemical sense, it's probably the first sense that any animal had. So it might be that, that smells are operating amygdala directly in hippocampus rather than just operating, going through uh, thalamus and, and being directly. So that's kind of neat. Uh, hypothalamus not too important for our 
purposes, uh, what hypothalamus does is homeostatic stuff. It, it keeps you um, warm. It keeps, oh, sorry, it keeps the temperature. It, it, it can tell when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, that kind of thing. So then, um, when women go through um, um, menopause, yes, thank you. No problem. I'm pre-menopause. That's why I forgot that. Um, <laughs> um, so then, is there a lack of connections? Uh, no, that's because of what's happening in your autonomic, uh, sorry, yeah, your autonomic nervous system. The uh, it's, it's hormonal, and I frankly don't know the mechanism. Oh. I guess that should be lies. <laughs> My policy is not to you know try to lie. The nucleus accumbens, uh, which we don't see here, um, the accumbens is oh well because it's a little sort of closer to the base of, 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 of cortex. Um, it's the it's the reward center. It's, the, it's part of the reward system. It's what makes things feel good. Why are you mentioning that? Well, I'm mentioning that because we remember things that feel good. And that's how we learn. When things feel good, we do them again. Uh, the medulla, which is down around there, that's the sleep and wakefulness. That's important for our purposes. All right. Questions about that? Key thing, hippocampus. Next, amygdala, rest of them. I wouldn't worry too much. There are cells in your brain. There are two kinds of cells, neurons and glial cells. If you've taken brain behavior, you know that it's way more complicated than that. But for our purposes, let's just say there's two kinds of cells. There's neurons and glial cells. Neurons do the transmitting. They send and receive information. Glial cells do, do uh, support functions. They do repair, um, that kind of thing. Glia is a Latin word that means glue. So in a lot of respects, you can think of it being the glue that holds the nervous system together. Many types of neurons and glial cells, so we don't really have to worry. There's a lot of kinds of neurons. There's seven, base, and there's like five kinds of glial cells, and we don't have to worry about it. You take a brain behavior, you'll you can start worrying about that in two weeks. The radio glue, right? The radio glue, right? Yeah, because it's a I got laughed out loud. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I didn't know what it was, so I made up. You made up a thing about it. That's why I remember that. Double road. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you'd give me a mark. No, I really have to be really, really. I have to find something really, really funny before I give it grace for making me laugh. That isn't true. I've done it once. And it was when on a statistics test I asked for robustness. And it's about can a, can a statistic um, uh, stand violations to its assumptions? That's what robustness is. And someone wrote the quality imported to beer by using finest hops of choice barley. And I wrote, yeah, good enough. Awesome. It's worth one out of, it's one, it was one point out of ten on a quiz worth two and a half percent of the final grade. It's like, yeah, fine. I'll give you that one. But it's happened once. It's happened once. No, it wasn't as bad as that time the person wrote for their, their definition for neural Darwinism, which was, you like neurons, it's, you like Darwin, and it's about neurons. It's like, <laughs> it's like, both of those things are true, zero. That's the person that got one of the 50 out of the test. 
Yeah, that takes, that's effort. That, you, you can't get one out of 50 on purpose. Like, you have to do it on purpose. You have to try to do that poorly. Because you should be able to fake something. Right? My favorite brain di- di- neuron diagram. Now, you've seen it before. It's my favorite one. That's why you've seen it before. I used to try to draw neuron diagrams. They all came up looking like a moose. Because <laughs> the, the, the dendrites would look, would look like antlers, and then the axon kind of like a big nose. It was like a, some sort of moose elephant cross. Okay. This, that's one of the reasons I like this. This is a nice simple diagram of a very generalized neuron. So what we have here, the impulse is coming in through the dendrites to the nucleus, along the axon, and out to the next neuron where there's connections. We have this myelin here, it's called, the myelin sheath, which speeds transmission. It's basically, this is fat. Um, in essence, what the myelin is, is think of it as the coating on the wire. That kind of thing. Okay. And if that is degrading, that's muscular. That multiple sclerosis. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a demyelinating disorder. There's others, but that's the that's the one. Which explains why, for example, in early stages of MS, you have problems moving because it happens in your peripheral nervous system first. It eventually does spread to your brain. It's not very much. There are drugs that are getting better control. Okay. Between the neurons, there's these teensy little gaps. And that gap is called the synapse. It's a Greek word. It means gap. So neurotransmitters go across the gap, and they cause the next neuron to fire. Okay? So from one neuron to the next, causing the next neuron to fire. All we're doing. No transmitters, just chemicals to do this. Move across that gap. From axon to dendrite. From axon to dendrite. And I can see some of you with the look on your face going, you're just telling part of the story, and yes, I am. There's a whole other part of that story. Take a minute. And again, if you're in that class, in about three weeks, you'll learn the rest of that story. Um, why aren't there direct connections? Like, why is it just wired up? But, you know, think about it. Why would you just use, why don't you just have wires? Right? I mean, and it, on the surface, that seems like a really good question. It's not a good question when you think about, well, it's a good question, but it's got a simple answer. Um, other, draw, other chemicals, other neurotransmitters, things called neuromodulators, uh, can affect what's happening in that gap. So now, rather than just have a single circuit that goes straight through, we can have, you know, we've got a connection here. So there's, here's, some, here's some neurons, okay? Very simple little neural network I'm drawing here. Now, there's a gap here. Instead of having them directly connected, there's a gap. So what if another neuron over here, and what if it's just releasing neurotransmitter Right? And into this one, and then there's one here. And over here, so we got this nice little network going on. Now, there's a connection here to this synapse. Not 
from this to this neuron, or from this to this neuron, but the connection here is both these neurons are synapsing onto that neuron. Or, oh, well, sorry, this one's synapsing onto here, and this neuron is synapsing onto a synapse. Right? Now, if that's happening, what you're doing now is you're releasing, you can change this message. You can change this message. If a certain state is met, if something else is happening, let's change this a little bit. Right? So it allows for more complicated networks. Right? It allows for something complicated, not something simple. They can be simple, but they don't have to be. We can also have like drugs be released into a synapse and affect uh, a circuit of some sort. Yeah, yeah. Is, is that what happens when you, um, I forget what the test is, I think it's visual search, when you have your rules change and you have to go from a, um, from one response to the left side to the right side okay. using a response okay. or something? Well, that shows the flexibility of the system. And that, that this kind of thing allows for flexibility. This kind of setup allows for really great flexi flexibility in any nervous system. You know, you can talk about humans all you want, but we can talk about nematodes with 302 neurons, and they have this kind of flexibility too. They also, the nice thing about neurons is a neuron is a neuron is a neuron is a neuron. So I can study neurons in petri dishes and find something about people. I can study neurons in, a, in an animal with 302 neurons and say, well, acetylcholine works, that's a neurotransmitter, works the same way in this animal as it does in this animal with us. So I can make some conclusions there. So I mean, this allows for this, the modulatory properties of other chemicals. So this could be a neurotransmitter being released. It also could be what's called a neuromodulator that changes how the neurotransmitter works. So it just allows for a way more complicated system to deal with way, a way more complicated world, right? So that's why. All right. Learning and memory is probably actually happening at the synaptic level. <coughs> it isn't going to be only happening at the synaptic level, uh, but it seems to be. There's just kind of part of it. Um, is learning, and then therefore memory, is it just new synapses, new connections. Well, in fact, if you take rats, uh, and you have two groups, you have one group that you treat like normal lab rats, they live in the wire mesh cages, et cetera, et cetera. You have another group that live in wire mesh cages, of course, but they also get toys in their cage, and they get played with every day. Okay, you take them out, you send them on your, you, and you gotta do this, you gotta put your arm like that, or they crawl in there. You have to put your arm right like that, and they crawl in, you pet them. Rats are going to be nice, they're nice little animals. And you play with them every day. Awesome. Yeah, they're really nice, they're really nice. Do what problems don't live very long. No, that's just what I was saying. My rat used to like steal money from people's pockets, and it chased them around the string, and it loved to cuddle and sleep with you. Oh, no, they're, they're nice little animals. Yeah, yeah. they really are. They really are. And then they'll sit on your shoulder. Yeah, so and yeah. they don't bite as much as hamsters or anything. They're awesome. Hamsters are skittish and quick. Yeah. Rats, rats will be quick, but they're typically. They're perfectly fine around people. They will even fall around people. Just because you get a good domesticated rat, know where it's coming from, make sure the. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying go and catch yeah. a rat inside. That's, <laughs> no, no, that's bad. That's not how you get a pet rat. It's like you know, just find an old stray mangy dog and just go, here, my God. It doesn't work. But don't go away from that area and be like, terrible. Yeah. Oh, my God. Those things are. 
Yeah, or, or New York, where you'll see them that are, or you know, Toronto, look in the subway. Just as the, as the, as the subway's coming up and the, the, the light will come, you'll see them all scattered. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a whole other world. Those are, those are different kinds of rats. I would, regular rats, I'll pick up, no problem. That would, no. Take out my garbage Newfoundland, and all of a sudden there's two of them in the garbage can, and one of them falls out on me. I thought it was like a cat or something. Yeah. No, it's a big rat. Yeah. No skunks, though, in Newfoundland. Yeah, that's Yeah. Yeah, so they got that going for them. So you take these rats when they're done of this of, of, of all this nice treatment after a month, and you compare them in, in their ability to, to learn. Uh, a maze, and in fact, the rich rats do better than the, than the non-enriched rats. And you think, well, why? Well, it turns out, because after that, you take these cute little furry animals and you chop their heads off and you look at their brains. Well, what are you going to do? Put a little tiny rat MRI? You kill them. It's what you do. You kill them. And um, I'm going to sugarcoat it. You sacrifice them, as it's always a technical term. But you kill them. And... You look at their brains, and the rats that were enriched had a thicker cortex than the rats that weren't enriched. So it looks like they've learned, they've got more brain. That's good, more synapses, more synapses then. Um, the nicest case here is something called long-term potentiation. And I know a lot of you guys are in Lori's class, right? So you, she talked about LTP just the other day, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, LTP basically is the idea that a circuit, and this tends to be a hippocampal circuit, fires more quickly the next time uh, after it's fired once. So the next time it fires, it fires more quickly. So it's like revving. Exactly. Yeah, 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 I didn't think of it that way. I mean, basically what happens is it's because of a neuromodulator called uh, NMDA, okay, which is a, it's a neuromodulator. It makes the circuit fire more quickly. And you can have, you can, you can, you, the nice thing about it is you can block long-term potentiation with an injection of an NMT, NMDA antagonist. You just block it. Because it's, it's in hippocampus, it's a circuit firing more quickly after it's fired one time, and the more times it's fired, the more quickly it fires. That sounds like learning. That sounds just like how learning works. So what if we block it? Then we don't get any learning. And people get very excited and say, well, that's learning. And it isn't quite that simple. Um, a lot of this work was originally done on the, it's called the Morris Water Maze. And the Morris Water Maze is a, developed, by, developed by Richard Morris. It's a, about this big around, and it's about that deep, and it's filled with an opaque liquid. And you put the rat in it, and the rat's task is to swim around until it finds a little platform. Rats can swim, rats don't like swimming. They're like cats, right? Cats can swim, they just don't want to. Right? But if you throw a cat in a river, and I'm not saying you should do that, but if you did, <laughs> they'll swim. Same thing with a rat. You put him in that Morris water maze, he, he's not very impressed, but he swims. And he finds a little platform, and he gets up on it, and he goes... <laughs> then he goes... <laughs> you ever see a rat? They do that, make that face. And they learn that very quickly. They learn where the platform is. They're good at it. And again, it's opaque liquid. Often it's skim milk, actually. Because uh, it's, it's opaque, but it doesn't have any, um, there's no fat in it, so it's not like it gets all sour and gross in the animal. You can clean the animal off pretty easily. You wouldn't want to use regular milk because you'd end up with sour milk all over your rat. Skim milk isn't even really food. So, it's like, skim milk's like margarine. Uh, it's not really food. 
You can ingest it, but it's not really food. It's wrong. But she's eating some chalk. Anyway, milk isn't supposed to be blue. It's got a blue tinge to it. Anyway, I'll stop. I hate skim milk. I hate margarine. I hate things like that. So what happens is the rat learns this pretty quickly, and then what we do is we take rats and we give them long, we block long term <coughs> differentiation, and they can't learn this. Everybody's like, yay! It's learning. We found the real basis of learning. You tell a colleague of mine in graduate school, I guess postdoc friend of mine, Deb Saucier, S A U C I E R. Uh, and what Deb did is she blocked long term potentiation and her rats could learn it. And it's like, oh, damn. And she did have some trouble getting it published because it was so flying against stuff and it was like against all the other results. It did eventually get published in a meaningless little journal called Nature. So I mean, she did okay. Um, she gave them pre-training. She didn't ever teach them whether the, the platform was, but she taught them, she put them in the, and got them used to the swimming in the little in the pool. And that made all the difference. So is it important in learning? Yes. Is it learning? No. Is it not? Is it, or is it one of the mechanisms? Yes. Is it the only mechanism? No. Would be a, a little weaker way to say that. But it's important in learning. You know, it's important in learning. So that's kind of, I mean, and Deb's been doing that kind of stuff for years, and it's pretty cool. What's it called again? Uh, Morris Water Maze. It's not really a maze, it's a pool. It's a big round pool. About a meter in diameter, it's not bigger, and it's maybe 10 centimeters deep. Just deep enough for the rats to swim. All right, guys, we'll continue this next time as you're all apparently leaving. So I'll see you next time. Things have been okay for me, except that I'm a zombie now. Really wish you'd let us in. I think I speak for all of us when I say I understand why you folks might hesitate to submit to our demand. But here's an FYI you're all gonna die screaming. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're not unreasonable. I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside and eat your brains. I don't wanna nitpick, Tom, but is this really? Spend your whole life locked inside a mall Maybe that's okay for now But someday you'll be out of food and guns And you'll have to make the call I'm not surprised to see you haven't thought it through enough You never had
bigger picture stuff But Tom, that's what I do And I plan on eating you slowly your eyes All we want to do is eat your brains We're at an impasse here Maybe we should compromise You open up the door We'll all come inside and eat your brains I'd like to help you Tom in any way I is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.